HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bonnie knows when you plant something, it keeps on giving. Growing from friend to neighbor to community. Generations of gardeners have trusted Bonnie for fresh, healthy vegetable and herb plants. Rely on Bonnie for quality plants, help, and support. Bonnie, gardening with you since 1918. BonniePlants.com You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. I'm the beverage director at a couple of restaurants downtown, Delanima, Lartuzzi, Anfora, and uh, La Picho. And this morning, I'm really excited to be here with someone I admire very, very much, um, someone who has been in the wine industry for some time, um, but brings uh, a ton of enthusiasm, excitement, and a super high level of uh, just quality and just a great guy all around. We have Patrick Capiello uh, here on the show with us. He's the uh, beverage director and partner of uh, the the highly reviewed uh, Pearl and Ash. I actually brought my mom there for her birthday uh, after going just a few days before with uh, with some wine industry friends. It's just a killer place. I'm, I'm just excited to have you on the show, Patrick. I'm very excited to be here, Joe. Thanks. Hey, man, it's, I, was, it, I was wondering who you were talking about for a minute there. <laughs> I, was trying, I was getting nervous there was going to be somebody important in the room with us. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've known you for, for a little bit, um, and you have quite a, you know, you can tell by looking at you, but you have 25 years in the industry. Um, tell us a little bit about how you, uh, how you got started. Uh, you know, I started the way a lot of people, I think that, uh, that are in the industry did. And that's, um, uh, in front of a dishwasher and, uh, busing tables when I was like 15, a uh, restaurant called Crescent Beach Hotel in uh, Rochester, New York. Yeah. Which is an, an sadly no longer open. It's, uh, actually one of the many restaurants that I used to work at that are, that are no longer <laughs> open. <laughs> Apparently I have that, uh, gift, I guess. Hopefully not, hopefully, hopefully not anymore, but yeah, so I, I, I bus tables and, uh, you know, it was, I did it as a spare job to be able to afford um, uh, skateboard parts. Like, that was it. I was just a little skate punk who, uh, you know, spent almost as much time on a, on a half pipe as I did, uh, 
in a restaurant, and then uh, I went to school sometimes. And uh, you know, after that was over, uh, um, my job, my next job after that was at Chili's. I was a, a bartender at Chili's, and then eventually a manager for a bit. That was all through college. Yeah. I'm going to keep listing it off. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's interesting. You find that a lot of, a lot of times great chefs are maybe the ones who weren't going to school so often. Um, but I find that in the front of house, the small A's tend to be like more of the overachievers. You get the yeah. Thomas Pastuzics who like have three PhDs. Right. Maybe that's a little overstating, but, but <laughs> well, Thomas and I, I mean, actually I did get my shit together at some point and uh, I went to college. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy, which did me absolutely no good. <laughs> I'm one actually Thomas, I believe has a philosophy degree too. There's, there's, I would say 50% of the sommeliers in New York city have philosophy degrees. So we have something interesting to talk about when we're all drunk, which is, you know, kind of fun. Maybe. <laughs> well, what, I mean, what was the first experience working in a restaurant when you're like, ah, I want to do this. This is, yeah, this is I mean, my calling. I, I, I was living in Cleveland, Ohio, um, uh, and I worked at a restaurant called the Baricelli Inn, which is also no longer open. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> um, but it was like one of the fine dining destinations in Cleveland. And um, it was uh, uh, the chef owner had a decent wine collection. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't really anybody that knew much about it. I worked there with a guy named Nathan Wesley, who is now uh, a senior editor at Wine Spectator. Uh, this is like 15 years ago, and one of my good friends. And um, Nate was actually the first person to kind of turn me on to wine. He, uh, he gave me Kevin Zraeli's Windows on the World, because he knew I was interested, but I didn't have a lot of knowledge on wine. I mean, I grew up around it, because I grew up in like the Finger Lakes region, Rochester, not too far from the Finger Lakes region. Uh, so there was wine around me, but that was normally like me and all my buddies like renting a party bus and just going from winery to winery, getting drunk. You know, it was, wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, then when you go to a winery, a winery in the Finger Lakes, they usually give you like the taste in like plastic solo cups. You know what yeah, I mean? I believe, I believe that's called the Long Island Challenge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, in, but it would be in the Finger Lakes. It's the, it's the upstate version. Upstate version. Um, so yeah, uh, I was at, at Berchelian and, and Nate, you know, Nate had had a good knowledge, and, and he used to hang around like wine bars in Cleveland, and he was really good at guiding me and got me into it. And then slowly, I became kind of the the go to guy between him and I, the, the two go to guys to talk to tables about wine because there was no sommelier there, but there was like a two hundred bottle wine list. It was, it was cool. I still have a copy of the wine list someplace. I look at it every now and again. It's actually inside my windows on the World Book, and. Uh, so that spawned it. And then I decided to move to New York. I was going to come here. Uh, a friend of mine was m- going to make documentary films, and I was going to help him. And uh, I was looking for a restaurant job, and, and the owner of the Barrage Land was like, yo, you should check out Tribeca Grill. Um, it's uh, you know, a, good, a, a great uh, standard in, in New York for restaurants, and they have a blossoming wine program. And you know, David Gordon, who's a wine director there, I'm sure would be interested in you know, working with you. And that's when, I, uh, that's when I started there as a waiter. Uh, I worked under David and worked alongside with uh, Yoshi Takamura, who I think you met at the Poly this year. And uh, both of them became like my two real first mentors and inspirations. And I learned, you know, so much. I became the first sommelier that they ever had on the floor there, which was cool. Uh, yeah. Can you, can you uh, tell us what year that was? That was 2001. July of 2001, I moved to New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's remarkable. I think of Tribeca Grill is being around for a long time and having a great list for a long time, but they didn't really have a smiley on the floor till 01. Right. I mean, David was always uh, on the floor. Dave, David yeah. would like, David, like he'd be like, you know, uh, work in the front door or, or down in the office doing paperwork. And then if somebody wanted to ask about wine, he'd come upstairs and speak to him. But I mean, <coughs> the list was, the list was, um, 
you know, it was it was it was a very specific list. It was very focused on California and and Chatham to Pop at that point. So and the staff had a decent knowledge, but it was it wasn't like it wasn't a wine destination. You know what I mean? People would go there, and most times they'd be like, "Oh man, this is a really big wine list." Like that was what you'd hear people like to shocked to know. Now I think we kind of assume it as being because it's you know it's a Grand Award winner, and that was that year, first year we won the Grand Award. I think was when things started to really you know take off. And then Yoshi was on the floor as a manager too, but he had to do double duty. Um, you know, this is I think now it's more common for sommeliers to do both, but. He was a unique situation because he was like David and him were both part of the management team. I was just a waiter, so that mm-hmm. they were they finally were able to convince the staff to let me in the tip pool as a as a sommelier, and that's all I did was you know was work the floor as a sommelier. So yeah, just to sell wine. Yeah, I mean you, you see like a kind of two kinds of sommeliers. There's one who kind of what I, what I did at Babo was really just focus on selling wine, and then. When you had free time and you weren't selling wine, then you could help out, help run some dishes, whatever. Right. But, or the sommelier manager when you're really much more involved in service. Right. It means you got to close and do the paperwork. Yeah, you got to <laughs> do all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then uh, after the, after four years there, which were unbelievable, um, I, Tim Kopeck hired me at Veritas, which was, you know, like, it, it was the most magical time to work at Veritas, too. It was, it was sick. Like, you know, we were opening all the amazing bottles of wine. 2005, that was. So... It, it's you know the economy still hadn't yeah. hadn't busted but before yeah. the crash before everyone yeah when yeah. it was still cool to open a ten thousand dollar bottle of wine which people yeah. used to do all the time it's yeah it's it's crazy uh, you know I I, I I you know I used to, I, I started I would when I first started there I would write down the wines mm-hmm. that I was opening and then Tim Kopeck one day looked at me when we were like five bottles deep like totally screwed he's like put that book away. <laughs> I'm like, all right, yes, sir. And I never picked it back up. So I don't have any, you know, record. And God knows my brain is so broken at this point in my life that I couldn't, I couldn't recall half of the stuff that I drank. But So, so you go from, uh, from Ohio to a huge all-American list to, or mostly American list, mm-hmm. I guess, to a much more Eurocentric list. How did you right. prepare for this job at what was then, I mean, the, you know, premier, other than maybe, maybe you had, you had Veritas and maybe Crew, and those right. were the two best lists in the, you know, in the city right. at that point. How do you prepare for something like that? How do you, how do you, how do you get ready for that job? Quickly. <laughs> because uh, there wasn't much time in between. You had to like, I mean, I, I, I had a copy of the wine list, like literally with me the whole, the whole, it was only like a two week transition between Tribeca and Veritas. Yeah. And I was worried about that. I talked to Tim. I was like, listen, I don't know. Like David Gordon was, is, is not a huge fan of Bordeaux, for example. Um, and so there was like no Bordeaux on the wine list <laughs> at Tribeca Grill, but Veritas had like an epic amount of Bordeaux. And I was like, what am I going to do? And then I'll you have like, these people who come in who, oh, wait a second. They've had that Bordeaux from that vintage yeah. like 20 times yeah, and they know it extremely well. Like yeah. that's what I find intimidating sometimes. Like, when you have like collectors who are fanatics who really know those particular wines really well. And yeah. that's what I was afraid of going into Babo. And I bet that you came across that a ton that for sure know, people just wanted to, you know, talk shop with, with yeah. the Psalm. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait a second. This is like, you guys really know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, it's, I, I, and it's, you know, it's, it's like what I tell any sommelier, like, like confidence is a hundred percent of it. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to ever like, and I, and not being embarrassed to say you don't know. Like I still say that, you know what I mean. I, there are wines that, that that are on the wine list of Pearl and Ash that maybe I haven't checked in on in a while because you know I, we I work with a collector of Pearl and Ash that has an amazing collection, and it's the same collection that I worked with at Gilt. Um, uh, so uh, you know there are wines that I haven't checked in in a couple of years, and people mm-hmm. are like, so how is that drinking around? I'm like, you know what? I it's been a while since I've been, but it's okay. Uh, you know what I mean? Like like I, I feel like I feel really lucky to know a lot about 
a lot of these great wines that I've had a chance to taste, but wines change. Wines change significantly in, in a year's time. So uh, I always tell like sommeliers who are you know kind of new in the industry when they ask questions like that. I'm like I'm like you know what the number one the best thing to do is be honest always. If you don't if you're not sure don't 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 lie because yeah. you're going to open that bottle of wine and then everybody's going to find out if you're telling the truth. And it's that's dangerous. You know, you don't want to look like a like 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 a poser. You know, that's true. I mean, one of the things that that I always say is that the most important thing is that you build trust with the guest. For sure, if you can build trust to the guest by the end of the meal, you could say, "I really think you should have that like thirty dollar Calvados." And if they're like, "This guy's been like taking care of me the whole time," yeah, they'd be like, "Fuck yeah, let's take the thirty dollar yeah, yeah, Calvados." Yeah, yeah. But like, <laughs> but if they're like, "Oh, he's been selling me, and he looks like he's been fudging that. He doesn't really know, and he said something, but I don't know if he really meant it." Like, right. You know, if the if the glass was smudged and like the fork was off a little bit, and I guess like what's going on here? Right. No. And but and, and, and you're 100 right. Yeah. But I, but you eventually do learn, and but by tasting, you know, that's the fun part mm-hmm. of being a sommelier. So you know, within within a year of working at Veritas, I could tell you exactly how every first growth from the '96 vintage was drinking, as opposed to the '95, like that that specific, because we sold that much wine. <laughs> I mean, I remember we used to have '96 Latour on the wine list for like 350 bucks. I mean, it's crazy. That's like less than retail now. Yeah, yeah. way less than retail. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I would I would drink that bottle if I came in a restaurant and they had it for that price. And it's epic wine. That 96 Latour is like, wow, it's, it's money. I mean, I love Bordeaux. It's, wait, and now it's funny because now all of a sudden like, Bordeaux is becoming fashionable again or, or it's trying to, I mean, I think. And, you know, um, Bet- Richard Betts is, is doing a project with it too, which is actually really cool. And, uh, but, and, and that's, you know, big concentration. I mean, the list at... Pearl and Ashes, it has a lot of Bordeaux on it, and I've kind of come under a little bit of fire for that. But it's all like amazingly well priced, um, vintage depth Bordeaux, and I think Bordeaux's really good. Well, let's and let's talk about that. I mean, Bordeaux is part of you know of your history, um, stuff that that you know you you sold a lot of, you know really well um, that you're excited about. Downtown, you find especially like in downtown restaurants, you didn't see Bordeaux at all. But but I agree with you. I mean, even even Daniel Jonas, the great Daniel Jonas, who you work with on the Palais, right. which yeah. uh, you were one of our amazing leaders, and we should let's talk about that in, in a little bit yeah. about Palais. Yeah. Um, but even Daniel Jonas is importing some Bordeaux. Now, yeah. And he yeah. was like the most known <laughs> just for Burgundy and nothing else, right? <laughs> for sure, he's a yeah. I mean, when he to- first told me that he was working with, with some Bordeaux producers, I was like, wow, really? That's, I mean, but, but not that, he, I mean, Daniel is, uh, I mean, he's a lover of all wines. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I remember, like, cruelly at some point early in my career, like, we, we so th- we, we do a lunch. Um, of, we have done this holiday lunch, and it was a lunch that I, that I never was involved with. I, I remember when I was a waiter at Tribeca Grill, I used to watch every uh, Christmas time or whatever, David uh, and David Gordon, Tim Kopeck, and Daniel Jonas would do this lunch. Um, and, and they would go to some restaurant and they would all bring a great bottle of wine and David would come back and tell me all about the wines they drank and it was like Koch and Reyes and all this crazy shit. And I was like, wow, dude, that's amazing. I'm like, someday I'm going to break into that lunch. Someday I'm going to make it happen. And eventually after a few years of begging them, I think they finally invited me and Yoshi along. And I, I, I think I blind tasted, I brought a bottle of, uh, like a California Chardonnay and, uh, blind tasted them on, it might've been like Martinelli or Marcus or something like that. And and Daniel's like um, approach on it. He's, he's such a gentleman, like the way that he like you know he he didn't he didn't he, I think he knew what the wine was, but did not want to hate on it at all. And you would expect like he would be like, oh, this is like some oaky swill. But he was very good about like pointing out the, the all the things that were great about the wine. And you know he even took the point he was like, you know I think this is probably a new world wine, but I think it's right on par with like a premier uh, premier cru white burgundy. So like I think 
he always is open. Like if you taste with him, you see he 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 always looks for the value. Most sommeliers, I think, look for the bad in a wine first, but Daniel always looks for the good in a wine, which I think is I think is unique. No, most people don't do that. I think so. Where were we going with this? Oh, talking about him buying Bordeaux. So yeah, so I mean, when 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 he, when he, when he, when he started working with and, uh, and our mutual love, affection, admiration of Daniel Johns. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he yeah. That, that guy. Without him, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be where I am. I mean. Uh, the first trip I ever took to Burgundy was with Daniel, and um, this was 2003, 2004, uh, and we went and visited Henri Jaillet, and it was just before he died, and, uh, and I sat on Henri Jaillet's couch in his office, and Daniel st- stood between us and translated a conversation, and you know, like, we, we didn't even taste any wine at that point, because he was done making wine, but like, to have that opportunity, and like, just to get a glimpse into like, one of the, uh, arguably one of the best winemakers to have ever lived on this planet and uh it was pretty special so i mean that was for me that sealed the deal i would at that point would do anything for daniel but yeah he's a great guy he's and guy. and now we do the paul a uh, as you mentioned uh you know the paul a um this was my first year as uh chef sommelier um so it's a role that david gordon uh, always held and uh he still is assisting me in, in the role because it's, it's a big role i mean as you know like controlling 50 sommeliers or, or at least trying to trying to lead 50 sommeliers is like trying i think uh david lynch sent me an email about it he's like it's like hurting uh cats <laughs> it's 100 percent true i mean i mean you know our our our, our <laughs> there's a lot of most sommeliers tend to be very proud of who they are as people <laughs> it's and, and that's good i mean i'm proud of them but when you get that many big personalities who are constantly being, you know, um, affirmed about who they are and how great they are, what they do. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to 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 get them all to do one thing. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's but but the team is awesome. I mean, you, this this was a, one of the best polys. So it was my first one as 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 a chef sommelier, and I thought it was I thought it went really well. Yeah, I mean, unless you thought different differently. Uh, no, I, I'm still in awe, and, and I still feel like someone's going to find out that I'm not good enough to be there. Like, that's my whole fear the whole time. I'm like, you should worry crap. about that, actually. I have some notes that uh, we'll talk about later. Oh, no, no. no. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, the it, it, there's some of, like, there's the greatest Mollies in the country who know these wines back and forward, and, and I just try to, to, to absorb as much as possible. Like, when you could be, when you, you know, when you could be working on a team with, with you and, and Raj Parr and Aldo Soam and, yeah. and Thomas and, and Bobby Stuckey and just like the it's list the goes on yeah, no, and on of like, just like the best people in the industry. So it's like, I'm just going to shut up as much as possible and try to like listen and ask questions. And, and that's great. I mean, there, there are definitely people who've been there like since the beginning or multiple years who have more experience and. I'll ask them lots of questions. Like Drew, Drew Hendricks was super uh, helpful. Yeah. And, uh, just ask everyone lots and lots of questions. And uh, just it's such a learning experience for me. I feel just lucky to be part of that awesome team. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's special. It's special. We need to drink some of the champagne, man. Because, oh, hell yeah. Uh, it's, 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 this is what I normally have for breakfast. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I put a little orange juice in it just for fun. Uh, no, no, come on now. So what what are you opening up right uh, now? This is um, Ulysse Cullen, who is uh, one of my all-time, well, not one of my, I mean, yeah, he's, he's definitely one of my all-time favorite champagne producers. Sorry. I'm going to make some noise here. All right. Um, so he, he's, he's a guy who learned uh, from Solos. So uh, Anselm Solos, uh, Domaine Jacques yeah. Solos. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> this is what we're going to do. We're going to have you open up that champagne. Yes. We're going to drink it during a little break. And Sounds then uh, 
come up with some witty things to say about it. All right. Back. <laughs> I look forward to that. All right. This song is called Bang Bang Sun by Iggy Dean on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. something it keeps on giving growing from friend to neighbor to community generations of gardeners have trusted bonnie for fresh healthy vegetable and herb plants rely on bonnie for quality plants help and support bonnie gardening with you since 1918 bonnieplants.com we're back on in the drink I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, here with Patrick Capiello, the beverage director and partner of Pearl and Ash. Um, he's just popped open some killer bubbles for us, which is, which is awesome. Also, we were talking about before, the Chef Sommelier at La Polet, and Patrick's also just worked at kind of all, many of the best, just the, the top wine places in the city, including Tribeca Grill, Veritas, Gilt, and now... The uh, recently uh, New York Times just gave just loved up on you, uh, Pearl and Ash, uh, which is which is quickly becoming the wine destination downtown. Uh, thanks to your hard work and uh, good cheer. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, a, a pretty pretty intense. You know, it's the first. As I mentioned, I've closed quite a few restaurants, including Gilt, which just closed in December. But it wasn't something I was happy to have being known for <laughs> i prefer I, but I, i've literally never opened a restaurant before this is the first time at at uh the ripe uh, old age of, of 40 i finally opened a restaurant and uh it was really kind of a, a, a i'm gonna get to that too yeah so drink some champagne it's good um but it's it's kind of been an amazing experience to go through not only like the ways of having to open a restaurant like all the stuff that goes into it and you think you know about about how to run a restaurant and think until you have to start from scratch and you've done it so many times. I don't even know. I mean, like after this one, I'm like, I'm never opening a restaurant again. <laughs> Although I think we're already thinking about opening something else. Uh, but, uh, but it's, it's, it was intense and going through the critical part of it was probably the, the roughest because I've never been, you know, we, we had, we had highs and lows during our review process and we very rapidly, like, I think, I think from what I understand quicker than most people have, like within, within, a few short weeks, we already had people filing uh, reviews on us because there was, you know, there was an immediate buzz and from, from what I've gotten from other people who've gone through this experience, like their analysis, many people have said, you know, you kind of, 
you started with so much internet buzz, uh, you know, between Twitter and Instagram and, and everybody talking about what was going on there. And I think, you know, starting off by having a bunch of sommeliers come at friends and family, that was it. Like Robert Bohr um, came with Ned Benedict and um, Daniel Jonas and uh, um, Richard Betts. They all came at, at a table and they were like chomping at the bit to tweet about what was going on. They were like killing the wine list. We sold so much wine on friends and family. Like that's supposed to be the free night for everybody to come, but they, they didn't want the free bottles. Of course they wanted to drink off the wine list and, like it just, it just, they wanted to tweet tweets about, it, but we weren't allowing them to tweet that weekend. But on Monday when we opened for the first night, everybody just started going crazy tweeting about it. And this immediate buzz came on and, and you know, I didn't, I just assumed it was natural for all your friends to want to come and visit your restaurant. But it was like every day I would get an email requests from someone being like, can I come in? Can I come in? I heard the wine. This is great. And then I found myself like thinking, we opened like a 200 bottle wine list. I'm like, you know what? I probably should keep this thing going. I, I, I rented a zip car at one point and drove out to New Jersey where my collector who consigns with me lives and like loaded it up. I'm like, I need more wine. I think, I think I'm going to be in trouble here. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it became really quickly before we knew it, knew it. Like, I don't remember who the first critic that came in was. Um, it might've been Cuzo from the post. He might've been the first or no, Ryan, actually Ryan Sutton, I think was probably the first guy that we, that we noticed. And of course we don't know what any of these guys look like. And we didn't notice they came in, you know, on the record, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I mean, you know, if, if, if I'm sure the critics know, but if you walk into the back of the house, any restaurant, there's like a picture of everything. It's like, it's like wanted oh, yeah. posters, like everybody's pictures there. And you yeah, know. I was just down in, uh, in Texas at, at, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, Tim loves, uh, place mm. called the woodshed. And even in the kitchen there, they had like, they had pictures of like barbecue reviewers. Yeah, you know? yeah. You, I mean, I mean, it's I, you know, it's it's. I don't think it's cheating. I, I think it's. I mean, we try to treat every guest exactly the same. But when it's a critic, you know, like you try to make sure that everything is even more like perfect than I mean than than you you have to make sure. I mean, you know, because you get one you get one shot at it or you know, whatever a couple shots at it. But and you know. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't acknowledge, you know, on the radio that I ever recognized when people else came in, but I think I had a feeling that it might've been him once or twice. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, but I treated him the same way I treat everybody else. Like at, like at Pearl and Ash, it's a very laid back approach on wine. I think when you put a 500 bottle wine list in front of somebody on the Bowery, you got to be careful. It's like, it can be super intimidating mm-hmm. and, and it's like, not everybody's coming there and we, our food costs like $11, you know what I mean? For a plate. So it's like, it's like, and it's Swanee food. I mean, Richard Quo, who's our chef who was worked uh, at WD-50, at Cortone, at Show. He's got, like, you know, serious chops. The guy, the guy knows how to cook really well, and it's beautiful food. But, you know, because of the pop-up he did uh, over in Williamsburg called Frey, he learned how to make, turn simple and humble ingredients into really excellent food. And uh, so the theme of the restaurant, and that's what Pearl and Ash means, it means it's like uh, some, some uh, Chinese uh, um, parable or, that uh, Richard heard as a child where it's like you can have something as you know precious as a pearl, but you don't need to have it in like a fancy box. You can just have it in a you know a pile of ash. Like that's the idea. I love that, and I think that speaks to the sensibilities of how people like to eat now. Yeah, you know, definitely. We all we all like Momofuku Sambar. Big, uh, you know, thank you for getting people comfortable with having kind of fine food in a casual downtown place. Right. Um, but yeah, I think the food is the food is just killer. I. I mean, I really think that Gabe, uh, who Gabe Thompson, who's the chef at, a, at you know my business partner and the chef at our restaurants, makes like the most killer octopus, and I will like fight to the death to say that that is the best octopus 
until I tried your octopus, <laughs> and it just blew my mind. Like, how could I like something as much as or more than than Gabe's octopus? And so, yeah, the food the food is just absolutely killer. Um, and it's just like I I also recently went through this like this whole review period time. And I just think it's like the worst time in a, a restaurant's life. Yeah, it's it's you know the the conceptual phase building it out training people getting excited about it and then like actually serving people are all great but then somewhere in the middle is this just horrible time of when you have to like be on edge like i don't know about you but i would i would dream i'd have these nightmares where i would like go over to a critic's table and like spill food on them while simultaneously sneezing all over their face and and then wake (laughs) up i'm like oh my god did that just happen (laughs) (laughs) it's nerve-wracking man i i think it's more i mean it's more scary than anything but you know i I, I if you, like you've been to before Pro Nation like my my movies like I said it was very it's very like a casual approach like mm-hmm. I sit down at the tables with people if there's an empty seat at the table I sit right down with them with the wine list and it's only because I'm six foot two and they're sitting on benches that are like a foot tall you know what I mean like there's no backs in the seats it's all really awkward as far as like you know positioning yourself it's it's not necessarily designed for somebody to have to have a huge wine list they have to go through so. Plus, I feel like coming down with people's level, like, or, or if, if I can't sit down, I'll like literally like, squat down right next to them. But I think that, you know, having that type of service in that situation, it's, it's, it's the only way to go. But so, I mean, yeah, I mean, like when, when every critic came in, I mean, I sat down right with them. Like, I think at first, the first time I sat down next to Pete Wells, I, I, he, I think he looked a little shocked. <laughs> He's like, what, what is wrong with this guy? Like, this isn't how it works. Like, you're not supposed to do this. But then I think he saw me sitting down with every other table in yeah. the restaurant and, you know, in the the review that he wrote, he wrote really. I mean, I feel so like honored that he got it. Like it was it, that was the way the review read to me. It was, I felt like that review was a good thing for uh, not just the restaurant, but for the whole wine community, Somali community um, in general. My, one of my big criticisms, if I can criticize the New York Times review, <laughs> you can. Go and ahead. I told Asimov when he was here as well. Like I think that they don't spend enough time talking about the beverage program. It's become such an important part of uh, what you know of of how you plan out a restaurant, how you design it, how you train um, everything from not just the wine, but cocktails and coffee and juices and all of this. And it, it, if there's if there's a sentence about you know all that thought and time and effort that went into it in a in a review, then that's then that's more than normal. So right. the fact that Pete Well spent as much time talking about how great you are and how much I agree with him on that, <laughs> uh, I think that was just an awesome awesome thing for for everyone. So yeah, it's been great for us. <laughs> Although I, I mean, you know, it's it's my my whole thought process with, with, with building the list there and like I came on as a consultant like I was still the wine director of the New York Palace Hotel like they had retained my services and um, my thought was I was good, just trying to make a wine list that I wanted to drink from I live in that neighborhood so I was like there, and there's nothing down there it's like but you look at there's there was epic lists at time like like Little Frankie's and Frank had big wine lists so they, they, they took a chance and they're not far from there uh, granted it was all Italian but but it wasn't that far out of the box for somebody to want to put together a large wine list I think and then I would go to Ten Bells like which is like one of my favorite places in fact Fifi was in last night which was such an honor to have him in um, and their wine list doesn't extend for miles I mean it's, it's written on a mirror you know if you've ever gone there or a chalkboard or whatever so it's, it's it can't, can only be as long as that but they have a lot of cool natural wines and, I, and you know I was in Paris this past August and 
I made it a point to really make, I wanted to experience what was going on new and fun in the Paris wines, uh, wine and food scene. And I went to like Vervolet, I went to Chateaubriand, I went to um, Frenchie. And the one thing I kept noticing at all these places, even though they were super casual bistro style places with really in- innovative cuisine, they had awesome wine lists. Mm-hmm. And they were really well priced. And I was like, why the hell doesn't this exist in New York? Like, and why, especially why not in Manhattan? Like, it, make, it makes sense. Like, like, wine destination restaurants are like a dying breed. Like, crew, clothes, Veritas change concept. You know, guilt, and I was trying to make that the wine destination restaurant, but I think being that it was in a hotel made it a little difficult, but there wasn't, you know, 3,000 bottle selection there that, that, that nobody paid any attention to. I'm like, there's got to be a reason why, and I think the reason why is because people who drink wine don't necessarily want to drink DRC. I mean, they want to, yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't think they can afford to. So the, the list was structured based on, on that kind of an attitude. Uh, I wanted to create something... So for me, I wanted to create something I could drink from. I was like, I was like doing this as a friend for my my or a favor for my my chef friend, and I was like, I'll just do I'll just do F and B credit. Don't worry, I'm just going to come in and drink all this wine and put it on the wine list. And then it became this huge, you know, as we spoke about this huge big thing. And before you know it, they were like, Hey, how about you don't go back to the Palace Hotel? I'm like, How can we do that? And they're like, I don't know. You want to be a partner? And I was like, Yeah, that sounds good. I've always wanted to own a restaurant. So yeah, it was a win win. I think yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you definitely earned it. Like. And uh, one of the things, I mean, you said a few times that, that you're casual, but when you go to the restaurant, uh, you know, I'm used to seeing you in a suit. I'm used to seeing you in yeah. a well-tailored, six for two inch, good looking guy, well-tailored suit. You wear, you wear it really well. And then uh, I come to the restaurant, I'm like, you working? And you're like, oh yeah, this is what I wear at work now. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I need to see like your enthusiasm for, for what you're doing down there. And it, it just feels like at Pearl and Ash, you're like actually in like, it's like it's like it observe Patrick in his native environment <laughs> wearing a t shirt yeah. and, and an open, you know, yeah. short sleeve button down, <laughs> look at the smile on his face yeah. as he sells some sick wine way underpriced. Yeah. Like, that, like that's it feels like you're you're definitely just just grooving it there. Yeah. Well the one thing I collect more than wine is rock t shirts. I have like <laughs> I have a dresser that's dedicated just to my t shirts. So and I've never, and the only time I ever wore them when I was doing cellar work at Guild, like I never had the opportunity to wear any of these t-shirts. It was the one day off that I had, like I would wear them out maybe, but it's so great to be able to like, and now I'm like buying more t-shirts again. Like I, I kind of stopped at some point because I was like, I have no more room. Literally I bought a new dresser. One day I went to Ikea and just like bought a new dresser just to put my t-shirts in. And I was like, man, I, I really would love to wear these more. So, and it's been funny that like, you know, like even like Time on New York mentioned it and uh, what, what uh, who else? Uh... Yeah, um, Village Voice, and then Pete Wells all mentioned like different rock shirt, rock t-shirts I was wearing. It was funny. I, I when 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 after every time any time a critic came in, I would retire that t-shirt so I wouldn't wear it again because I didn't want <laughs> I didn't want to duplicate any of the t-shirts. So I had like this whole pile of you know t-shirts that I couldn't wear until after the reviews were over. I was so happy because one of them was my Joy Division t-shirt, which is like my all-time favorite t-shirt. Yeah. So just going back to this idea of the of the reviews, just quickly, yeah, because when when they started coming in, like within. You know, we opened up a week before Hurricane Sandy, and then uh, we were closed for a week. And then the following week after that, the reviewers started coming in. Like, Amazing, ah. right? And, you know, that was something where it's like, oh, my God, like, this is just so ridiculous. We're just, like, getting back, and we're just opening. Um, and, like, how could these guys be coming in right now? But at the same time, I felt... Well, to a certain extent, this is like I hate this time of like I hate the whole rev- the reviewing thing. The reason we get into the restaurants restaurants is not to like make critics happy, but to make people happy. Right. So 
it's kind of nice to get that all out of the way. Yeah. How, how do you feel? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Do you, would you rather get out of the way? Would you, or do you think it's better to have like a more accurate picture of a more fully mature restaurant? I think I, for us, it's good to get it out of the way. I think because I think we really want to just have a lot of fun there, and not that it's not you can't have fun with the critics in the room, but it's a little more stuffy. And I, you know, I think that it was starting to, to wear on the staff after a while. It was like, my god, like well, how many, who else is coming in again? Like every day, a new critic would be in there, and it was like. You know, it, you just it just the management gets nervous. I, I get nervous. The chef gets nervous, and the atmosphere gets less comfortable. And now we're having so much fun. Like you know, the playlist is changing a little bit. You know, where yeah. I think we're finding we're really finding our groove now. And I and, and also the food consistently gets better. I mean, I eat that menu every night. Like every night, Brandon McCrow, our general manager, and Richard uh, Richard Quar, our chef, and myself sit down and eat the whole menu every night just to make sure that the cooks are on it and killing it. And we have even seen in, in, in every and everybody like people that came from friends and family like Mike Madrigal came from friends and family and then he was there, there again like last night and he was like dude the food I mean it was great already but it's so much better now because well you all, you get your groove on it. and I think yeah. once and once you're less focused on worried about who's gonna come in and sit down you can actually be like okay this we we got into this because it's fun right we like to do this so now we're actually able to just kind of take a deep breath and just really you know enjoy it for what it is yeah. It's it's great and it's and it's been like so busy, which is another great thing. You know what I mean? Like to, you know, the, what's what's the best time to to go if you're at? Uh, well, we're trying. We're, we're we're looking at. I went, I went on a Friday night at eight o'clock. Which, yeah, which that's not going to happen again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, for you, we can work it out. We, no, we're we're trying to implement open table um into it and have it make sense. We the idea was we wanted to make it a walk in place, and and you know the best thing about that neighborhood is is that there's a million places to get a drink around. Like, Pegu Club's around the corner. Experimental Cocktail Club just opened up. I mean, there's so many great cocktail bars and fun bars that go to. And, you know, we have a system where when you come in, we'll take your phone number, go grab a drink, and when you're ready, we'll text you, and then you'll t- come back. So I, I think, you know, any... It, 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 if you come, the earlier you come, obviously, the better chance you have of getting a table. But if you don't want to eat at 5.30, which I understand. I mean, I eat at 5.30, but it's called lunch, you know? <laughs> like, um, But it, yeah, I think if you just... Plan your night so that you're not starving when you arrive, and if you have to wait a little bit, you know we're gonna we're the 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 it moves quick. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't I don't want to commit to anybody what time the best time to come in is on the radio. Anytime, anytime is a good anytime time to come in. Yeah, yeah, come in. That's all we want. That's all the uh, and drink the wine. Yeah. Speaking of the wine, uh, I've been just loving this Julie's Cologne. Uh, it's the Blanc de Blanc. Yeah, Blanc de Blanc. This is uh, he wow. makes two different um, vineyards. This is from Le Perrier, which is. Uh, um, uh, the, I think it's the first vineyard he took back. His his story is like so many stories in uh, in in Champagne. Uh, young guys whose families have owned vineyards for for generations and have always sold them off to one of the big houses. Uh, you know who those guys are. You know the guys <laughs> that you see at every liquor store and you know come in uh, bottles that have like yellow labels or whatnot. So they, they, they you know they they would sell it off to one of the big big houses that the juice the grapes and. You know, there's been a movement for Anselm Slos who's kind of started this idea mm-hmm. of it's okay to make uh, 20,000 cases of champagne. You can do it and you can sell it and you can sell it in the United States. He proved that it's possible. So these young guys who kind of watched that movement happening in champagne have grabbed onto it. And, and now it's, as these land leases are taking up, they're, they're taking the vineyards back and they're getting an opportunity to make wines on their own. So Elise did some training with, with Slos a few years and, and as his... Uh, um, his family's leases went up. He was, took back the property and then started making the wines. So they're really, for me, great. I mean, they're, they're wines that have tension, but richness and power. Like, they're, they're, they're wines that are, are so aromatically expressive. I mean, for me, it's like just jumps from the glass. It's, it's, it's 
these guys are all about making single varietals uh, from single vintages. And even like a guy like this, who's, you know, he doesn't have the ability to, by law, you have to have like, what is it, like three years or five years? This is where I need an MS in the room, but uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's three years of, of lease time in order to, um, so the wine sitting on its lees in order to declare the vintage. So even though this mm-hmm. wine is made entirely from yeah, one vintage, sense. it's 2008, um, they can't put a vintage date on it because it doesn't spend enough time in the cellar. But this guy doesn't have like, an epic seller to age all his champagne in. He's just a farmer. So it's kind of another way that the laws have screwed over guys like this, but he does, you know, he rises above it and, and uh, you know, so it's, it's more Burgundian in style was my point. Cause it's one varietal from one place from one vintage, very similar to the Burgundy theory. Yeah. And you know, we're drinking it in uh, white wine glasses and it's really, I mean, I'm thinking, wow, this is a great, like Chablis, really good uh, Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And, I forget that it has bubbles until yeah. like until you actually taste it. It's true. Yeah, it it, it drinks like a like a white burgundy. You're you're 100 right. It's, it's so good. It's killer. So it's a, a grower champagne, single vintage, single grape, mm-hmm. single vineyard. Yep, 100 percent Chardonnay from 2008. This one, the a lot of them uh, put the vintage dates encoded on there. Like, oh, like for a him, lot to yeah, 008 exactly. See, so it says L08 on the back L08. there. And they even put disgorgement dates on too, which is another thing, you know, even with non-vintage champagnes mm-hmm. or people like Solos does like this crazy Solera that's aged, it's, it's, he adds equal parts that he takes out back to the, I think 84 was when he started this, the substance, but he puts disgorgement dates on everything. And that, that's important to know because if you walk into a liquor store and it's, it's, a, it's a wine that doesn't have a vintage date on it, you don't know how long that thing's been sitting there. And a disgorgement date gives you the opportunity to see it. So more and more you're seeing disgorgement mm-hmm. dates on the back, so... It's good information to have for champagne. I think it's interesting, geeky information to have. Um, but personally, I feel like a wine like this, if it was cellared properly, disgorged in 2012, it's good 5, 10, 15 yeah, years. at least. But if it's something that's like your average, you know, non-vintage champagne, right, right. then you it's you want the fresher disgorging Yeah, date, I think you know? so. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'd be worried if, it, I mean, if, if you could tell on, on some of those bigger houses, like, you know, who knows how long that thing's been sitting in the case stack at the liquor store, oh, yeah. you know? And it just it, becomes a commodity, and it's yeah. just like, yeah. is this something that's on the list? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is on the, we, have a, we, have a, we have every one of his vineyards. He makes three different vineyards. Uh, he makes a, a Blanc de Noir, which is 100% Pinot Noir, and then he makes mm-hmm. the, uh, two different um, Blanc de Blancs. Yeah, I'm, I've always been a big fan. I buy as much of it as I can. Actually, right now, we're pouring... Um, the Blanc de Noir by the glass, uh, uh, Mayon, which is uh, um, awesome, so delicious. I, I, I mean, I got like you know two cases of it, but I was like, you know, I want to I want to share this wine, so I put it on for I think really affordably by the glass, so you can come in and, and have an opportunity to taste cool stuff like this. So I, I, I remember when we were first talking about Pearl and Ash, and you're like, you're like, yeah, these guys asked me to do it, and I was like, all right, I'll do it, but you know, there's I have two conditions. You said to me, you're like, I get to put on. Bordeaux downtown and number two everything has to be like just so affordably priced has to be marked down like way lower yeah. and like you see like I'm gonna kill these guys on their on their yeah. cogs beverage cost <laughs> beverage cost is not good and, and you know but but you know what they, they they get it like the guy who is our 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 fourth partner who you know prefers to just not be mentioned like which I think is so cool he owns the building and he's and he and he's he gets it. You know what I mean? Like there was a restaurant there before us that didn't, it didn't do too well. And I think for him to see what's going on right now, he's like head is spinning. He, he can't believe it. And you know, we have our monthly meeting, our monthly PL meeting. And I'm like, yeah, that, so that's the beverage cost that I was t- warning you about. <laughs> and it's high, but it's, it's what we're busy. And, and they, they see the, they see, uh, you, you, you know, those, so many of my sommelier friends are like, yeah, man, you can't take beverage costs to the bank and in the right. I mean, and not only that, the value 
like I want people to be like, oh wow, like I'm t- I'm totally get taking taking one over. These guys have no idea how much this wine is worth, man. This is way too cheap. Like I want people to feel that way. I want I never want anyone to feel like, oh man, I want to drink that bottle of wine, but they're totally trying to screw me over on this. Like that's who wants to feel that way? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's I think it's if you can convince for anyone listening to this, if you can convince your restaurant owner that a higher beverage cost is a better move, I think you'll be rewarded. I mean, I, I've seen it, and and it's going to stay that way. We're not, you know what I mean? Like people, are like, oh yeah, once a review comes out, you're going to raise prices. We're not raising prices. Prices are staying the same, or or else I won't be there anymore. I won't yeah. put my name on it anymore. Well, unless it's how that. deep is the seller of uh, of the, the guy who's helping you out? Are you going <laughs> to at some point? Are you going to have to start looking elsewhere? No, I mean I, I I've always had other collectors. I mean, when I was at Guild, I had two collectors, and that other collector is still available. And now I have two more guys that are clients that love the restaurant so much and have always wanted to consign with me. But I was waiting kind of to make sure that this was all real. Like I was pinching myself a lot of the times, and now I'm ready. So we're going to see. Um, we're building a new wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting next week and uh, we're going to have a capacity of 4,000 uh, bottles and the wine list is probably going to jump over 1,000 in the next uh, month or two so be ready for that what yeah and one and this one guy's collection is really amazing like I mean <laughs> I, I, I thought I thought I thought that the one guy I have now is great this next guy like it's going to be next level alright so by the let's say by the end of the summer yeah it'll, it'll be a thousand yeah Yes. Label I will list commit to that. On the freaking Bowery. <laughs> oh my God. The place where when I started at NYU, I would walk more quickly across it because yeah. I was afraid of all of the bad stories of the Bowery. And now we have a thousand bottle, you know, list curated by freaking Patrick Caffiello, <laughs> Chef Smalley, and La Poulet, and like Smalley, like all these like grand award winning restaurants on the Bowery, freaking with incredible food. That is so so cool. I'm like I'm just ecstatic. Just the, the thought of that. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about it too. Cool man. Well, well, I mean, I'm going to encourage everyone. Uh, I've I've been there myself multiple times sure. recently uh, to check out Pearl and Ash. Say hi to Patrick. He's uh, he's been there every time I've been there. So um, and drink some some great wine off that list. It's one of those lists where it cur- encourages you to spend a little more than you normally would because you know that it's half the price of anywhere else you'd see it in the city. Um, and eat some delicious food there. So thanks so much for listening. This has been in the drink on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.